My friends, and welcome to episode 12 of Criminal Broads, your friendly neighborhood true crime podcast about wild women who have ended up on the wrong side of the law. How? Why? They couldn't tell you. They've been framed. Anyway, my name is Tori Telfer, and before we get started, I just wanted to say, guys, thank you. Thank you so much for the very kind and generous iTunes reviews. I was putting off reading them because, you know, this is the wild west of the internet. We, you never know if you're going to log on and see that someone is saying they want to skin you and wear your face. I mean, it's horrifying out there. So I was afraid, sort of, to look at my reviews, but I finally got around to it, or rather, I finally got the courage to do it, I should say. And wow, I was so touched. You were all so nice. The, any critiques were said so graciously. Um, I really appreciate it. It really made my day. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Really, really made me happy. As something of a gift to you, I hope that you will extra enjoy this episode because, you know, we've talked about sad topics on this podcast. We've talked about scary topics. We've talked about complicated topics. But I think, I think it's fair to say that this episode is just like, 98% rollicking fun. Don't get me wrong, there's crime, and I'm not justifying this crime, and I don't want any of you going out and getting involved in the cocaine market because you think these women are so fabulous, but these women were fabulous and funny, and uh, it's just a riotous good time to hear about them. So we're going to Australia in the 1920s. Now, if you're like me uh, from the USA, you probably have a picture of the 1920s. I used to be very obsessed with it myself. You've got your Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. You've got your Prohibition, your Flappers. Now, Australia also had some of this spirit. Um, they listened to a lot of the same music that uh, Americans were listening to in the 20s. There was also weird legal stuff happening with alcohol. Um, there was also a sense of joie de vivre. But I, I kind of think they turned it all up to an 11. <laughs> like, they went hard. Things were very intense in Australia in the 1920s, at least in the city of Sydney, which is where we're going now. So I'll stop talking about it and I'll stop giving things away, but let's time travel back there and let's meet not one, but two women who were queens of vice and very, very much hated each other. <laughs> ever find yourself browsing through Australian newspaper headlines of the 20s and 30s, you'll quickly notice that two names keep popping up. The names are women's names, short and snappy, Tilly Devine and Kate Lee. You'll see headlines like, Tilly Devine is charged with maliciously wounding Sydney Cork with a razor. Tilly Devine is charged with using indecent language and assaulting a police officer. Tilly Devine in brawl. Tilly Devine plays hide-and-seek with pressmen. Tilly Devine in trouble. Tilly Devine seeking divorce. Tilly Devine is back with a bodyguard. 
Kate Lee is charged with perjury. Kate Lee is charged with threatening a reporter. Kate Lee is charged with murdering John Prendergast. Kate Lee is charged with possessing cocaine. Kate Lee is charged with having broken her probation term. Kate Lee's daughter is wounded during an invasion of Kate's home after Kate threatened a man with a tomahawk. Kate Lee wears over 1,000 pounds of jewelry. Wild, right? Wild times. Who were these women with their exploits, ranging from petty crimes to outright murder, splashed all over the papers, along with notes about their jewelry habits and personal relationships? These were Australia's first real lady crime bosses, two bold, wicked, and frankly hilarious women who controlled entire gangs of men and made their fortunes in the underworld, taking narcissistic portraits of themselves in diamonds and fur, all while popping in and out of jail. They ruled eastern Sydney, which is today a lovely and rather expensive paradise, but in the 1920s and 1930s was an extraordinarily dangerous place to walk through if you didn't have the blessing of either Tilly or Kate. The two ladies had a lot in common, but they were far more likely to clash in a bloody brawl than to get tea together. One paper called them two bad apples, an unholy pair. They loathed each other and made sure everyone else knew it. It was simple geometry, really. In Tilly's eyes, there was only room for one glamorous, famous, Pomeranian-owning female crime boss in Sydney. Unfortunately, Kate felt the same way. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, Eastern Sydney was full of gangs who carried an unusual weapon. In 1927, Australia had passed the Pistol Licensing Act, which meant that anyone caught carrying an unlicensed gun would be automatically given jail time. This had the happy and intended result of cracking down on firearms, but soon enough a rather horrifying substitute sprang up to take their place. Gang members started carrying razors. Not the dinky little plastic things you can buy at a drugstore. These were straight razors, called cutthroat razors, the sorts that barbers used. Not only could they kill a man in a single stroke, but they could scar and disfigure, and there was something disturbingly performative about them. One slash, and you'd see a huge spray of blood arcing upward. Let's just say that one conflict between two razor-carrying gangs became known ever after as the Battle of Blood Alley. These gangs were called Razor Gangs, in homage to this terrifying instrument, and the two most prominent Razor Gangs were run by Tilly Devine and Kate Lee, respectively. Crime in general was on the rise during this era in Australia for a couple of reasons. Sex work was illegal and thus went underground. The illegal cocaine trade was booming since you could no longer buy the addictive stuff through licensed chemists. And bars closed at 6 p.m., meaning that at 6.01 you'd find a lot of drunk party animals who were jonesing for their next adventure and now had to get it illegally. Clearly, the vice scene was ready for someone to take control of it. Someone organized and ambitious who knew how to funnel all those roaming drunks into speakeasies and back-alley brothels, thus converting their party spirits into cold, hard cash. Slowly, the underground scene consolidated into two main razor gangs, each with their brothels and speakeasies and their vicious lady boss at the head. It was a recipe for getting rich, absolutely. It was also a recipe for conflict. Tilly Devine was born Matilda Mary Twiss on September 8th, 
1990, in London. Since she spent most of her adult life in Australia, it's easy to forget that she wasn't a local girl, but this foreignness would haunt her for her entire life. While the residents of Sydney gave plenty of grudging admiration to her rival, they never forgave Tilly for not being truly one of them. In London, Tilly grew into a pretty, flirty, precocious sort of lass with a penchant for street walking, and met a guy named Jim Devine, who was kind of a rapscallion and terrible at keeping his commitments. Jim was from Australia and had a background in shearing sheep, but when he left to join the army, he skipped out on his army duties so frequently that he was eventually declared an illegal absentee. Jim and Tilly got married and soon found their way back to Jim's homeland, whose criminal underworld was beckoning them. The two of them fell easily into a life of bloodless crime. Jim rented out cars, but this was no Hertz, this was no kayak, this was no enterprise. His rental cars were for criminal purposes. He would drive sex workers to a client's address, for example. He would protect those who needed protection, and you were always welcome to rent one of his cars if you needed a getaway vehicle. In the meantime, Tilly restarted her sex work, which resulted in a mind-boggling string of arrests for her. In the space of four years, she racked up 79 convictions for euphemisms like offensive behavior and indecent language. Tilly was never one to hold her tongue when there was a chance to hurl filthy insults at authorities, and so all those convictions meant the police were very familiar with her scrappy little face. There was no love lost between them. The police considered her to be one of the worst broads out there. Despite all these arrests, Tilly was on the up-and-up, criminally speaking. By the mid-1920s, she owned a handful of brothels, and she and her beloved had started selling cocaine, which was becoming more and more popular in Australia and more and more of a political and social concern to authorities. Their idyllic life was interrupted in 1925 when Tilly was thrown into jail for two years. Her crime? She'd waltzed into a barber shop, taken out her razor, and, for her own nefarious reasons, slashed a man in the hand so badly that the blood spurted onto his face. He had to get 17 stitches, and he was never able to fully use that hand again. Now, Tilly may have paid for this crime in jail time, but she benefited from it in terms of reputation. Newspapers were now calling her the worst woman in Sydney and queen of the night, and people crowded into the courtroom to catch a glimpse of her now notorious face. On the day of her sentencing, one newspaper noted that she was stylishly dressed. Tilly paid her time grudgingly and popped out of prison two years later to go on to bigger and better things. She was done with being the sex worker. She was now the boss of the sex worker, and by the time the early 1930s rolled around, she owned about 30 brothels spread across neighborhoods like Woolloomooloo, Darlinghurst, and Surrey Hills. She was kind to her girls, sort of. She gave them food and a roof over their heads and medical care if they needed it and bodyguards to protect them from unsavory characters, and she paid them well. But if they tried to leave her for another brothel or didn't hand over exactly 50% of their cash, she grew instantly violent. Tilly's temper was legendary and terrifying and impressive all at once. She could turn on a dime and she was never afraid to wave that razor around. She kept this razor tucked into a luxurious silver fox stole, for the record. During one of these disloyalties, she screeched that she would cut a hole right through the girl who'd betrayed her. One paper noted, she could be a charming hostess, but Tilly with the gloves off was a different Tilly. Her rage didn't always flare up over legitimate grievances like betrayal, either. 
She had to go back to court in 1929 after she purchased beef from a butcher, decided that it was bad, stormed back into his shop and threatened to plunge a knife through his heart if he didn't reimburse her. She also went raging around the store, forcing all the customers to smell the beef and tell her that it was bad. The papers noted that she had in her hand a large butcher knife, and not one was courageous enough to say that it was good meat. Clearly, Tilly was someone who wanted things done her way and would fly into a rage at the slightest provocation. Nowhere was this more evident than in her decades-long rivalry with Kate Lee. Kate Lee was born Kathleen Mary Josephine Behan on March 10, 1881, making her 19 years older than Tilly, a fact which Tilly was not afraid to harp on. She had one massive advantage over Tilly from the start, though. She was born in Australia. She was a tough, troublesome little kid whose parents allegedly neglected her, and by age 12, she found herself thrown into a state-controlled child welfare institution. At the age of 21, she married a man named James Lee who was, like Tilly's husband, of the criminal persuasion. The two of them assaulted and robbed their landlord, claiming that it hadn't been premeditated, it was just that, well, James found their landlord in bed with Kate and so he had to attack them. But the landlord roundly contradicted this, saying that they'd pushed him off a ladder. This got James thrown into jail, and by the time he popped out a few years later, he and Kate were separated. Kate found herself a new man, quickly enough, who was a much more legitimate criminal. His name was Samuel Freeman, and his claim to fame was that he and a friend pulled off Australia's first armed robbery using a getaway car. Their need for speed didn't save them, though, as Samuel was captured and given a 10-year sentence. Kate tried to give him an alibi, she was often giving alibis to gangland figures, but it didn't work and she was then sentenced to five years for perjury. Two years after being released, she snagged a new husband, Edward Barry, and began getting serious about her criminal entrepreneurship. Unlike Tilly, her main biz was the charming little industry of sly grog. In other words, illegal alcohol. Hooch, bootleg liquor, plonk, if you're using Australian slang. The phrase sly grog comes from pairing the phrase on the sly with the term grog, which was slang from the Navy, where it originally meant a weak mixture of rum and water. Since the bars closed at 6 o'clock, there was a huge industry for after-hours alcohol, and Kate jumped right on it. She was based out of Surrey Hills, and if you went to one of her fine establishments, you could indulge in any vice under the sun, from after-hours drinking, to cocaine, to betting and gambling, to sexual pleasures, for a price, of course. Kate was an excellent criminal, and tight with a complicated web of powerful male gangsters, though to be honest, none of them were as powerful as she was. But they'd protect her if she needed it, and she'd protect them in return, or give them alibis in court. Though she never racked up as many arrests as Tilly, probably because she claimed she never dabbled in sex work, which, believe me, was something she held over Tilly's head, she still had plenty of run-ins with the law, like when she shot a gangster who broke into her home in 1930, and, um, shot another one in 1931. By pulling strings and pleading self-defense, she miraculously managed to escape jail time for both murders. By the early 1930s, when Tilly was reigning over her empire of about 30 brothels, Kate was presiding over her kingdom of about 30 groggeries. They were both doing extremely well. Tilly Devine and Kate Lee were both women who knew how to keep their forces in control, wrote one newspaper, admiringly. 
If you were listening closely, you may have noticed that Surrey Hills, Kate's neighborhood, was also the location of some of Tilly's brothels. Yes, the two ladies were operating out of the same area and constantly at risk of stepping on each other's toes, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. It was kind of a marvel that there were even two of them in the first place. They were awfully similar, despite the fact that Tilly was English and Kate was Australian, Tilly was younger and Kate was older. Tilly had a streetwalker's background while Kate insisted that she had never sold her body. They were more similar, in fact, than they liked to admit. Both had a penchant for wearing tons of diamond rings. Both liked furs. Both loved dogs. Both were in the habit of giving gifts to children. More importantly, both had a keen sense for business, an ability to control large and complicated gang systems, no fear whatsoever of blood, a hatred of the police, zero tolerance for betrayal, and a genius for avoiding detection. They were also both incredibly rich by this point. Today, they'd be millionaires. And they were fairly young, too. Tilly was in her early 30s, Kate wasn't yet 50. They could have drawn a dividing line through eastern Sydney and each taken their little slice of criminal paradise, and perhaps everything would have been calmer. But that's not how it works when you're a crime queen. Kate wanted it all. Unfortunately, so did Tilly. Though the clashes between Kate and Tilly must have been terrifying when they happened right in front of you in the streets, with razors glinting like teeth in the sunlight, reading about them today, in the theatrical language of vintage Australian tabloids, is, quite frankly, so funny. There was the time when Tilly and Kate got into a physical fight which culminated in Kate sitting, yes, sitting, on Tilly in the street. There was the time when Tilly found out that, like her, Kate owned two beloved Pomeranian dogs, so she dashed out to buy a third Pomeranian, desperate to hurt Kate where it counted. Tilly must have died a little inside when one paper reported that, since Kate had more money, she could, quote, afford to keep more dogs. Laughter aside, in the late 1920s, during the heyday of their razor gangs, their rivalry was extraordinarily violent. Their gangs would ambush each other and battle it out in the streets. Tilly's husband shot Kate's lover at one point. Didn't kill him, though. In August of 1929, the gangs clashed in the infamous Battle of Kellett Street, where their men, after slurping up large amounts of sly grog and snorting piles of cocaine, battled it out for control of Eastern Sydney's criminal business by throwing bottles and rocks at each other and slashing with razors and occasionally whipping out a gun in blatant defiance of the Pistol Licensing Act. When the smoke died down and the police showed up, they found 12 men lying there injured, but no one would breathe a word about who else was involved. That was the gangland way. You handled things yourself, and if you snitched, God be with you, enjoy the afterlife. Now, things calmed down between the two women in the mid-30s as the police cracked down on cocaine and started breaking up gangs with new laws about consorting with criminals. In other words, they could now nab a gang member simply because he or she had been hanging around another known gang member. This meant that the particularly violent wars over cocaine domination lessened, and Kate and Tilly went back to their groggeries and brothels, respectively. 
Now, instead of sitting on each other in the street, they started running public relations campaigns in the newspaper. Each woman determined to prove herself the superior crime boss, fashionista, philanthropist, and Pomeranian owner. In a world living on publicity, Tilly realizes its value, wrote one paper about their constant campaigning. The result was that they both ended up looking insane, but by God, the headlines were fun. One tabloid, named Truth, sent journalists and photographers to trail these crime madams around their kingdoms, staging opulent photo shoots and printing whatever ranting and raving these ladies said. Tilly said of Kate, the underworld all took their hats off to me and class me a lady beside her. Kate said of Tilly, I'm not the worst woman in Sydney. Tilly Devine earned that title. Tilly said of Kate, sure Kate never worked as a prostitute. Who'd have an old bag like her on anyhow? Kate said of Tilly, fancy daring to mention me in the same breath as that woman. I refuse to listen to her name. Even the mention of it disgusts me. Kate told The Sun that she was going to travel to New York first class, unlike Tilly, who didn't travel that way. Tilly told Truth that she might drink and swear and have a run-in with the police now and then, but I don't take dope, and no one can say I have ruined young girls. Kate Lee does all this. Kate claimed to have generously given Tilly a dog, and Tilly objected roundly to this slander, sending a letter to the paper that said, Never in her life did she give me a dog. Why, my dogs? I have their pedigree, and they are a class above hers. One headline riffed on a popular song called Katie, which was about the sweet tale of a soldier with a stutter trying to woo his girl. The lyrics are, Katie, you're the only girl that I adore. But the article, in which Tilly claimed to be laying down the law, boasted the headline, Katie, you're the only girl that I abhor. To add insult to injury, the word girl was in scare quotes. By the time World War II hit in 1939, both women were benefiting from the increased demand for brothels that always seems to accompany war. Sure, they had to deal with police raids and the occasional conviction, but their wealth only seemed to grow and so did their diamond collections. That wealth didn't necessarily keep them from the rough-and-tumble side of criminal life, though. In 1943, Tilly had to get four stitches in her head because of a late-night brawl involving bottles and knives. Still, Tilly had grown so powerful at this point that she was finally able to divorce her husband. Remember Jim? Jim had grown increasingly abusive towards her. She married again in 1945 and was furious when, right after her marriage, she became the victim of several practical jokes played by an anonymous woman. Someone called the fire department claiming to be Tilly and saying that her house was on fire. That same person also called an undertaker and told him to speed over Tilly's house and arrange a funeral for her mother. When a journalist stopped by to get the scoop, Tilly answered the door, quote, fuming, in silk pajamas, a dressing gown, five magnificent diamond rings, and her wedding ring. Five years later, Kate also snagged a new husband, her third, who happened to be the man who'd been with her lover during that famous getaway car robbery years before. She wore a delphinium blue dress beaded with silver. Her husband told the papers that she was a bit too bossy. <laughs> In 1948, Kate and Tilly decided to quote-unquote reconcile, and they appeared in the papers looking grimly friendly and declaring that they got along now. 
Perhaps it was age that made them want to start being good, or at least appearing to be good. Perhaps, though, it was just another publicity stunt. One paper mused that, as the two rivals grow old, there seems to be a slight mellowing of their mutual hatreds, and quoted Kate as saying, Till's a very good woman, mind you, no matter what the police say about her. Which, of course, can be read as a compliment, or a genius little dig. The two of them were already in the habit of giving money to the poor or to the war efforts, but now Kate, in particular, began trying to clean up her reputation by throwing lavish Christmas parties for the poor kids in her neighborhood and handing out gifts that had clearly been stolen. She was a hometown girl done good, a reputation that Tilly never quite managed to surpass. Don't feel too bad for Tilly, though. In 1950, she threw herself an elaborate 50th birthday party for 300 guests that featured a case of champagne, a case of scotch, two suckling pigs, two hams, two turkeys, a goose, 20 chickens, and 30 lobsters. People brought presents of crystal, linens, and silverware, and, of course, plenty of furs. Age did not, however, soften these wild women. Kate was arrested at age 73 for assaulting a man, but managed to slither out of an actual conviction, as she had so many times before. By the mid-50s, both of them were struggling financially. Times had changed, bars stayed open till 10 p.m. now, and you couldn't make millions off groggeries and brothels the way you could during wartime. Each woman found herself dealing with massive income taxes and fines. Kate had to go to bankruptcy court in 1954, claiming she hadn't made a buck from all that sly grog selling. When the court asked her what had happened to all her diamonds, she replied, Lost two down the drain, lost one in flour, gave my nephew one, I sold one and bought clothes with it. Eventually, she had to start renting out rooms in her house to make a living, a far cry from her heyday when newspapers photographed her wearing 1,000 pounds worth of diamonds. On February 4, 1964, Kate Lee died of a stroke at the age of 82. She may have been broke, but she was still a legend. Her massive funeral was a veritable who's who of criminal figures, police, and politicians. Some of the police even told journalists that, you know, she wasn't all that bad. But one diminutive figure was more notable than all the rest. It was Tilly Devine. Very frail and suffering from chronic bronchitis, just six years away from her own death of cancer. People whispered that Tilly was only there to be sure that her rival was actually dead. Tilly herself sniffed to a journalist that she was only there to snoop. But perhaps Tilly, wild to the end, simply didn't want to admit that she was there to witness the end of an era and to pay her respects to the only person in Sydney she truly considered an equal. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of Criminal Broads. I hope you enjoyed the outrageous antics of these two women. If you like this, please consider leaving me a review on iTunes. I would love it. I would be very grateful. And if you'd like to see a photo or two of these women, hop along and follow me on Instagram at Criminal Broads. And stay tuned for next time, which is going to be our 13th episode, and it debuts 
on Halloween, which I did not plan, but it's working out so perfectly. And of course, how could I resist? I will be doing a very, very spooky subject. So get excited for that. I'll see you back here on Halloween. And until then, I hope you have a lovely October full of apple cider donuts and crisp leaves or serial killers and cult leaders, whatever floats your boat. Thanks so much, everyone. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.